You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The first thing tonight that's actually interested our son. Ooh, iPod son, iPhone and sound effects, cool. Well, we, with uh, two legends here, one of the things I really wanted to do, and because you've both been in the field for a long time, we're currently... (laughs) we're, We're currently in a world where fantasy is totally in the mainstream. I mean, everybody, you're just flooded by it. And that's great. I'm really glad for it because the fantasy that it is in the mainstream, you look at Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, I'm Harry Potter. This is all pretty top-notch stuff, even for, you know, going back in the day, had that stuff been around back then, well, Lord of the Rings was back then. But, Tad, when you started, that was not the case. And, uh, Deborah, when you started, science fiction was more of a backwater, uh, you know, a little... It, you, as you said yourself, uh, every uh, young literary editor dreams of, you know, publishing the great American kitchen epiphany novel. Oh my God, I should have married him. Yeah. <laughs> every young every young editor dreams of not publishing science fiction was what what it used to be. Except for I did the opposite because the moment I encountered it, I realized what a tremendously varied and fecund field it was, and that. Um, I, I, I did uh, come up in the business with people who had the most tremendous literary snobbery about fantasy and science fiction. Um, I, and, you know, of course they didn't read it. They had absolutely no idea about the sheer quality uh, of the writing. Tad? Some of the writing. Uh, I mean, no, of much of the of much of the writing. Of I mean, course. the first well, thing that I had was one of um, Gardner Dozois' year's best science fiction, and it was just incredible. Yes, but that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that's you know the the, the good stuff. But I mean, one of the one of the main reasons that fantasy and but that's true of every field. Though. Yes, of course, Sturgeon's law. We all know it. Um, but that's but. That's true of so many fields, and one of the things that happens with fantasy in particular, uh, even more so than science fiction, which although it's actually a subset of fantasy, is considered to be the more venerable field. But one of the things that, when people say, you know, oh, fantasy, it's, you know, it's kind of this crap, LV dwarvy crap and stuff like that, <laughs> what's often going on is a confusion of types of genre. And the confusion is between uh, literary divisions of genre and commercial divisions of genre, because mm-hmm. something like fantasy and science fiction, they are both. They are both, right? They are both the designation of a commercial product, and the 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 the, the uh, you know the designation for a particular kind of uh, fiction, right? Or a particular kind of subject matter for fiction. But the problem is, is that, uh, and this is actually, we have to blame Professor Tolkien for this a little bit, um, and which is that he was so fabulously successful with *The Lord of the Rings* that it, you know, it basically set the paradigm, and it became for many people what fantasy fiction or even science fiction um, are about, which I don't have a problem with in and of itself. But what happened is that 
it developed such a market, such a desire on the part of a huge part of the reading public that all of a sudden there was more more desire than there was fiction, than there was product, if you'll excuse the term, but we're talking here about the economic side of things. So as a result, what happens when you have a vacuum, whether in commerce or anything else? Well, stuff rushes in to fill it. So things that would not have gotten published 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier, um, you know, was suddenly being published in huge quantities because people just wanted it. But that's the commercial genre. Anytime you're talking about a commercial part of anything, inevitably, so, you know, it's like pop music, right? It's like 70% of it is going to be just stuff for people who just want to listen to what's on the radio and they don't really care as long as it has, you know, kind of recognizable chord changes and a little middle eight and, you know, all that stuff. Um, but that's not the limits of what it can do. That's not what the artistic genre of modern popular music is. Same thing true with our field. You know, when you look at the people from the science fiction people, you know, you look at the J.G. Ballards and Theodore Sturgeons and Ursula Le Guin's of the world and, and many of the people working contemporarily, including George Martin and, and many others and, and Dan Simmons and Neil Gaiman and all kinds of really talented people. Um, you know, that's... That's the literary side of what we can do, but there's still a, a huge amount that, you know, is stuff that's filling a market. You know, it's filling a market need. And unfortunately, a lot of the literary folk, a lot of the sort of, if you'll excuse a bit of a thing, the kind of the, the literary establishment folks, um, unfortunately judge it by the commercial part of the genre rather than by, you know, the literary part of the genre, the stuff, you know, by, by it for what it's supposed to be as compared to the stuff that's there to, to basically fill a marketplace that wants more of the same. Well, too, I, it has to do where they find it. If they find it in, you can find a lot of science fiction in with the literature. They're going to put Neil Gaiman with the literature. They might put Dan Simmons with the literature. And they'll think, well, this is literature. It's not science fiction. I like it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that's oftentimes the, the, you're absolutely right. If I like it, it can't be science fiction. It must be. And it also hasn't been helped by the fact that some very good writers like Margaret Atwood and Doris Lessing and even Vonnegut, bless him. Who I, you know, Vonnegut was a huge influence on me. But he was, um, he, he was a real Benedict Arnold when it comes to science fiction. He really, you know, he and a lot of other people kind of went, oh, I don't write that stuff. I'm not that kind of writer. And as I mentioned, Lessing and Atwood, both of them wanted well, now, nothing to do with science no, fiction. Atwood, no, Atwood is, Atwood likes science fiction. Well, but she, she, she used to say she that her book was, she said no. her book was, she said like The Handmaid's Tale was not science fiction. Which was to my way of thinking, uh, and that last novel of hers, she said the same thing. Yeah, it was oh, not. No, I no, she did. She thought she she did say it was science. fiction. Did she change on she, the new one? Oh. But when she says her novels are not science fiction, she doesn't think that she rises to the level of quality of most science fiction. Well, if that's what she's saying, then, then that's uh, that's very she, Canadian. She, she has her. a new book coming out now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's kind of has an Bless odd her. way of expressing herself. She has a new book coming out. It's all essays about how much science fiction has informed her life. She's a total geek. Okay. Well, then I, I withdraw. Oh, I withdraw yes, yeah. Margaret Atwood comparison. But she, Doris Lessing was certainly true. Oh yeah. Vonnegut and several others, a lot of people who've kind of said, and, and essentially they're doing the writer's end of what you said of the critics, which mm -hmm. is it if I like it, or in the writer's case, if I wrote it, you know, it's not <laughs> science, it's not geek literature, it's real literature. So Now, well, tell us about, you know, when you first decided to, to write, what made you make that choice? 
Um, I'll try and compress this because it's, it's kind of the entire story of my life between, you know, um, birth and age 26 or so. Um, in, a, in, a, in a nutshell, what happened was I've always been a reader. I always have been, as long as I can remember, I've been a reader of what we call fantasy and science fiction, among other things. But those were certainly among my most important and most favorite books. Um, what... What I was doing when I was in my teens and stuff was I was doing a lot of other things. I wanted to make things, I wanted to perform, I wanted to create. And it didn't occur to me until I was sort of in my early mid-twenties that writing might be a good way for me to go. I was, and part of the thing that made me realize that is that I was doing um, a lot of other collaborative artistic things. I was playing in a band, I was doing theater, I was doing radio. And I love doing collaborative work, but the whole thing about collaborative work is if any one part of the collaboration drops out, falls down, gets confused, shows up to rehearsal too high, um, <laughs> the whole thing kind of just goes to hell. And I was at that point, we had our, um, the, the band that I used to be in, we had a, um, actually had an audition that we were going to be playing at a club and somebody, I think it was Jerry Pompili from Columbia Records was coming to see us. And this will, this will date me, I realize that but um, we were gonna we were being considered to be an opening act on the Edgar Winter groups tour um, and it was a West Coast tour they were doing and the night before this biggest moment in our rock and roll lives at that point that the drummer um, broke his arm playing playing tackle football in the street not even on grass <laughs> in the street so um, anyway at that point, I, I, the, the, the bloom began to go off the blossom of collaboration just so, ever so slightly. Um, and interestingly enough, another thing that happened at the same time, I, I said I was going to keep this short. I lied. Okay. <laughs> but another thing that happened at the same time, I was living in a fourplex in Menlo Park um, with obviously three other tenants. And one of the other three tenants was a, a very good writer by the name of Ron Hansen. And some of you may actually know some of his work. He just had, uh, they just made a movie out of one of his books recently called uh, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford with Brad Pitt. He's written a number of very, very fine books and he's had two or three films made from them. He's a really good writer. At the time, he had the Wallace Stegner chair at Stanford and he was living in the same fourplex with me while I was, my wife of the time and I were, you know, uh, in, in, hadn't, I hadn't made anything out of myself at that point. And great guy, good writer. But I went, you know, he's not any smarter than I am, you know. Um, he doesn't read anything different than I do, and I think I can write also maybe if I tried. So that kind of was that spur of, well, there's somebody else who's making it work. But it also became clear to me that I could write anytime I wanted to. I could come home from one of my two jobs that I was doing, and if I had an hour spare, I could write at my kitchen table. And so that's how I wrote my first book was kind of, you know, well, why not? Why not give it a try? And then I was fortunate enough to sell it. And since at that point, I was trying to decide, you know, am I going to go back to actually get a college degree, which I never got. And um, when I was given the choice between going back to get a college degree or um, getting an advance to write a trilogy for a publisher, I said, well, I could go back to college anytime, really, honestly. Um, but this may be the one time I ever get offered money to write books. You know, and I would be a fool not to take advantage of this. So that's that's kind of where I jumped into becoming a writer. 
And that's where we got Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn? And that was that, that trilogy was Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn. Yeah, that pseudo-trilogy was Mary, Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn. And the, the book that I wrote after, you know, in the same apartment complex with Ron was uh, my first one, Tail Chaser song. So. Wow, that's, a, that's incredible to hear that. Deborah. She wasn't there. <laughs> I'm sure she wasn't. She was busy. In the I was public. less happily. Yeah. I was less happily married then. Well, tell us a little bit about what drew you into the publishing business. I mean, that uh, what drew me into the publishing business was um, I loved books and I loved words. I um, grew up in a uh, Rust Belt town. Um, that was very, very conservative. And if you had anything like any strange ideas, um, it, 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 it wasn't easy. And um, I had some wonderful teachers, but they were my only outlet. But uh, with books, I could travel in my mind in a way that I couldn't at all in life. And um, it's, it's, it's so hard to think about times like that now, of course, because, you know, to, for today's kids, everything, every culture is instantly available. Um, whereas I, I knew, you know, f the nearest country to me was France, and, and France was unimaginably exotic to me, never, never mind anything else. And... Um, Books, 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 reading, 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 reading. They were my escape. I um, I did want to be a writer. I had terrific emotional struggles as a child and as a young person that um, made it very, very difficult for me to push forward with it. I mean, the truth of the matter is I, I, I didn't have the confidence I was spending a great deal of my life saying, I am not going to get married and have children at 18. I'm not. Um, I am not going to conform to, to these ideas of what... You know, I mean, members of my own family regarded um, university education for me as a, as, as a waste and that... Or as showing off. Or showing off. Uh, and it was just... Uh, I mean, they... It all, it all changed ultimately and it all had a happy ending but I was very, very, very unhappy and a great deal of my uh, energy went into surviving that and escaping my hometown and the way in which I could escape best and swiftest was via the um, education system in the UK which completely underwrote at the time uh, education and your degree. I mean, my education was free. So I ran screaming for joy, and um, I, I went and did my degree, which was English and American literature, and uh, I just stopped thinking about writing, uh, except for I was absolutely determined to become a book publisher, and uh, that wasn't an easy thing because uh, in the early 80s, the uh, media in London was, was very tight, very closed series of doors, but I put all of my energy into getting into uh, book publishing. And and then um, the career uh, took off and was very intense. Um, uh, and and was a, I was very fortunate in many ways. Uh, but at the same time, as the, as the career went on and as I did more and more and as I felt that there were less and less things to do, that was when I started to think about writing again. And then I met Tad. And, uh, and then she began to think about drinking. <laughs> uh, so you know, basically, I am. I, I'm. I'm. 
I'm a writer in my heart and in my soul, but it's not something I've ever made my primary career from. It goes on and it goes on in all sorts of ways. Um, I have um, a, a humour page on Twitter, which is um, becoming something quite successful. I've got 31,000 followers so far after about 1,000 tweets, so I'm quite pleased with that. And uh, I'll, I'll be writing... In fact, I've already written the first book from that. Um, so I suppose, really, in a way, I'm a person who has always made her living from the arts rather than being primary, primarily a writer. I'm also fascinated by business, and I'm fascinated by companies and company structure. I'm extremely glad not to be working in corporate life now, having had 15 years of it. I mean, it, it really does... It rots the soul, frankly. <laughs> but that's me. Anyway, that's it. You know, Tad, when you were reading from uh, uh, Caliban, your Caliban book, I, I just thought it was so such a great, phenomenal look at um, what Cory Doctorow calls, you know, a pre-singularity state. Because Caliban himself, uh, he doesn't have language, and it's so great the way you use language to describe a state without language. Yes, and that's right. <laughs> it strikes me that you know you're a man who 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 is very interested in that kind of uh, the creative um, potential of language itself, and that's what the fantasy genre really offers you. Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I've always loved about uh, and and. When I say the genre from now on, we'll kind of presume that it means fantasy, science fiction, horror, the whole kind of bit. Because I, I, I don't actually like the distinctions that the kind of commercial realities of today have forced on it, where they want to be able to pipe everything to everybody, just the same thing over and over again. Um, and Do most they? Of my, Do well, they re I mean, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, in the sense that... that you know, the, 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 the greater speciation or specialization within these different genres, you know. I mean, not only do they want you, you know, not only do they want to, you know, get horror books to the horror book fans, but, you know, now you have to be a vampire fan. Yes, and not only yes, a historical yes, vampire yes. fan and a bisexual historical vampire fan, you know, it just gets, <laughs> it, it just gets narrower and narrower. That's the failure of the publishers. Well, no, but it's not a failure of the publishers. It's also, it's, it's I mean, it, maybe it is, but... It's the failure of the industry. It's commercial. It's a commercial thing. It's like, you know, let's not make people look around because then they might not buy something. Let's give them what they already like. Well, it's also it's a sugar. complete failure of the imagination because what catches people's interest in the first place is something new and inventive. Absolutely. And they absolutely never, ever figure out that we're not looking for another Harry Potter or the next Harry Potter. We're looking for something completely different that we've never seen before that's just as well imagined. Right. Well, I, I, think a lot of I think a lot of people are looking for the same but different. But I think the, disti the distinction for me as a publisher, because you're under tremendous pressure um, to repeat the formula, to, um, you know, to, to buy endless vampire books. You know, I sort of, I sort of, th I think all these vampire books are the backwash of the bu bush years, really. I think it's sort of <laughs> sotto voce America saying, well, this is what we really are. And I, um, and I think that, and I do think there is going to be a time when, when as, as prevalent as it has been, when, is, is when that is going to subside. But what I always look for, and what my boss, the great Anthony Cheatham, beat into my head, he said to me, it doesn't matter what the book is. When you find it, 
As long as it's good, just buy it, and then we'll figure out how to publish it afterwards. So um, I always just look for the story. Yeah, but you, but that's because, and that's exactly the way people should publish, but that's because you were backed by a publisher who felt that way. And you will notice that Anthony has never stayed with any of the publishing companies that he's founded. Except for he, well, he, he, he founded three or four. He was fired by all of them. <laughs> but not before, not before dropping a mega book oh, on yeah. all of them. You know, real, real big bestsellers. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying because that's you could do that, and you were, you were. I don't want to say raised because that may sounds like childhood, but you were inculcated into that approach by somebody who, on the one hand, absolutely was in books because he loved books, and mm -hmm. that's his first priority was mm -hmm. a good book, a good story. Mm -hmm. But he was also being drummed out of each successive company because ultimately he didn't want to make the bottom line his god, and that's that's right. That's what we're talking about. Well, it's risk aversion too. Yeah. He wasn't risk averse, and that's what they that's are. That's he the, was not. Yes, that's, that's the, right. Uh, Everybody's just terrified of, of making a, a, a massive mistake, and you know. Also, we, we've seen the triumph of marketing and sales. You know, one of the, one of the most unique things that publishing the industry has and the companies have are the editors, and editors are like film producers and film directors, and very, very many writers are enormously depend. They turn in these raw manuscripts that are very baggy um, and have real story and pacing problems. And it's the editor who cuts and pastes and cuts and pastes and nudges and babies the author into um, doing the rewrites that are really needed for the story development. And that's sort of all unsung, um, which is not my point. My point is that's where the real core of talent in the industry lies. And... Um, you going to stand for, for that, very, <laughs> For very many reasons, uh, we have seen the triumph of marketing and sales, so much so that um, it's very – it was hard when I left the industry to be an editor who um, had a vision, had an idea, had an anything um, that wasn't – led by marketing and sales. Well, the, the irritating thing about it, and, and well, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a little more of a, um, I'm a little more of a terrorizer of editors than, than um, a, a sort of a passive beneficiary of editing. But um, the, 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 the weird thing about that is that editing and, and, and editors are one of the most cost-effective parts of the field, because considering that they don't get paid much, yeah. and, you know, that can, you know, that yep. nobody in publishing gets paid much. I don't know if any of you ever been involved in it or are involved in it, but nobody in publishing gets paid a lot. It's always been a, 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 an industry with really small margins. Um, and yes, editors are invaluable. And, and my editors have been in, invaluable to me. And, you know, I, I, it's one of the many things that I'm going to be interested in, in over the next 10 years or so with where publishing and books and fiction and nonfiction and literature and all is going is what we seem to be moving toward is a modularization of the, 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 the process from, from idea to, to uh, reader. 
Okay, that in the old what you know we just come out of the vertical market, which was the dominant uh, the you know the vertical market concept, which was dominant for a long time, which is that your publisher, you know, bought the idea from you, sat you down to start writing it. You work with an editor, you work with an editor. Then at a certain point, as it becomes becomes a real book, then you know you, you get into the sales and marketing side, and then you get into the physical production side, and you get it, and the, the the company binds them, and they store them, and they ship them, and all that. Okay, well that model doesn't exist anymore it's it's dying so what we're getting entirely and and Deb and I are looking into is a lot of writers who are more interested in in self-publishing these days but what's going to be interesting is the that you two of publishing yeah but what happens with all of those people who are working those things are they still going to be out there are they going to be doing sort of ad hoc um, you know they'd be like kind of little editing clouds of people out there and you'll sort of go and throw your book out to that and get an editor here and then you'll get a marketer over here and you'll get a this over there um, or will there be more kind of coherent groups that mimic what a publishing company used to do except in a more modern and electronic based way with less em emphasis on bricks and mortar and actual physical objects and more you know and, and confining themselves to getting the book out and getting it known and getting it onto the net and and possibly editing also so will, will it be done by a group of separate contractors or will there be a new kind of publishing entity because the old publishers think they're going to be the new publishing entity and I'm not convinced they can make that no, transition no, they, no I'm not convinced either buffet uh Publishing versus co-op publishing is right. kind of what you're talking about. Whether yeah. the writer says, okay, I'm going to grab uh, Marty Halpern over here, and I'm going to grab uh, Jim Dylan Martin over there, and they're going he's going to edit, she's going to pub publicize, and right. it's all going to be just dandy. Yeah, So, but what's, it's going to be really interesting watching it happen. I, I've always been fascinated by systems in transition and, and edge cultures, whether in biology or in sociology, you know, when two different things come together and overlap and begin to change each other. Um, but I've, ne I've never been in the middle of an industry when it was happening, when this kind of major sea change was going on. So it's scary as hell if that's where you oh, make yeah. your living. Don't, yeah. don't get me wrong. But it's, it's, it's also really, uh, it could be scary as hell and not interesting. So I'm grateful that at least there's kind of some interesting stuff to, to pay attention to. Yeah. Well, you two are, are engaged in your own kind of e-publishing uh, thing. And, and uh, Deborah, you t tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, your your experience with the, the backlist. That was so fascinating. This is really insane how, I mean, you would think, I, as I said earlier, that in a world where people are, everybody's little kid has an iPod with all sorts of music on it that somebody might have learned from the example of seeing, you know, what was once a giant and monolithic music culture, corporate culture, crumble into dust before our very eyes. You would think the publisher would say, hey, maybe, <laughs> maybe we could learn from that. But no, and here um, well, is a great example Take it away. <laughs> well, I was just, before you do, I was just say, see, the music industry was actually even smarter than the publishing industry because, like, half the music industry was run by the mob. So, you know, they, <laughs> they already had a certain advantage in aggressive pursuit of the next, the next good thing. So, um, it's in a nutshell, Tad and I have recently had the experience of um, uh, not coming to a deal with a publisher. Um, whereby the actual um, uh, books at hand were um, not 
I mean, I mean, as a as a publisher, I always try to. I. It's so hard to judge, but I always I I, I was very much a, 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 a strategist, and I used to um, I used to plan people's careers. I used to plan where I would publish books. I used to plan my publishing schedules. I never just used to sort of put stuff out there. Um, as a complete control freak, basically. Um, and uh, so I always believed in, you know, trying to see the, the entire enchilada. Um, and Tad and I have just gone through an experience where the entire enchilada was not the issue, but a little bitty piece of meat hanging off the end was maybe, was what was being seen and, and, and rejected. And um, to our surprise, we found ourselves in a position that we hadn't even taken any notice of, which is that um, in this particular case, we have um, the e-rights to almost the entirety of, of Tad's backlist. Not in, not in the States. Not in the States. And um, so we were looking at one another saying, yeah, we're not um, e-book warriors. We're not, you know, we're, we're kind of lazy in a way. We just want to sort of screw around with our ideas and get some writing done and play with the dogs and the kids and have a nice meal at the end of the day. But um, no, there we are. We've got this, this silver platter of e-book rights. And so we're going to be publishing them ourselves. And these this was not considered at all in the deal-making. And I thought that that was monumentally stupid, Well, that's, that's But that's, that's also, that's old bookthink. That's old when book the publishing think. industry old used to think. have the market cornered. And they could essentially, people, you know, a good given company, if, you know, they could essentially it's, it's tell so you, well, you'll take this or you'll not, or you won't get anything. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. So we're, kind we're of sort Oliver of, twist we're you walking and, away. And, and then in the meantime, about <laughs> two or three months afterwards, we had this email saying, well, we, we're really looking forward to publishing your, the, the e, e-book editions of your books. And I just kind of went, what? You know, you, you've just, you've just said, uh, no, thank you. Um, go away, and at the same time you're saying, um, but but, uh, but, 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 but you know together. we'll give you twenty five percent. Yeah, we'll give you twenty five percent of your own valuable ebook rights to all your earlier books that that you own all the rights to. Gee, uh, we didn't, you know, we didn't even wow. bother to reply to the email. No, um, <laughs> I, I just wanted to correct one thing that when you said we're we're, we're kind of lazy. No, you're kind of lazy. I am committed to lazy. That's, I just wanted to make that. I, I can hardly believe I, I that. I think that's a key any, point. No, I'm well, really good at it. Well, listen to you guys. I, I mean, <laughs> this, this, is not the, this is not the verbiage of, of lazy humanity. Oh, oh I, I beg to differ. That's that those of us who don't want to do talk. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, the two of you have embarked upon the most hazardous career that move that any couple could ever conceive of mm -hmm. i mean oh yeah th this is like <laughs> you, it, it's like you become the knife throwing uh oh yeah <laughs> yeah the knife throwing except couple. the knives are going both directions yeah, both directions yeah, yeah. yes yeah. So, so talk about ordinary farm the decision to make it so i i love the concept oh, who thank where, you where did that come out of that was, a, that was an idea that was kicking around for a long, long time in the back of my mind. And when um, Deb yeah, and I were... I'm just trying to think of which, which bits were... 
if, if we actually sort of parse it out, it was okay. We're already no. discussing creative <laughs> rights here. That's okay. And then, and you probably want my ebook rights too, oh, right? Yeah. right? Yeah, no way. I'm sitting between them. My God, I'm going to step back here a little you, bit. You came up with the cause. You came up with the cause, it, it, and you were also thinking about the farm with mythic animals. Mm-hmm. Um, I came up. I came up with the house. Um, because I wanted to write, because the farm itself is basically Gormenghast as a farmhouse. Well, the house, yeah, the house is, or oh, it's, it's like the Winchester that. Mystery <laughs> House. It goes on and on and on, and nobody knows all the parts of it. Yes. No, no, yeah. well, I was just saying that the, the okay, let's. And the Flaming Loogie in book two that I just read, I chose that chapter because that was mine. <laughs> okay. Um, you did the Flaming Loogie? That seems more like a guy Well, thing. <laughs> I had some involvement. I see this is dangerous stuff here because um, I have to ride home with her, so I have to be very careful what I say here. Um, no, we. The, what I'm saying is that the basic original kernel of the idea was there, but then we decided we've been talking about doing something together, and, and this seemed like because I, it, it seemed like it would be fun to start something new, that that would be the best approach. And so that's where that came from. This was an idea that was sort of there in its in its germinal or infantile form. And um, then we were, you know, then we could use it and, and go with that and make something from it, which is where Deb had originally talked about writing some stuff based on some stuff that I'd already written. And I wanted to do something that was new that we could both do together. Uh, I love this idea of, you know, the house in, in Standard Valley in California. That's just so cool. Which, which valley is it really? I mean, where? Well, the most we know is we know it's somewhere close. Uh, we haven't picked an actual valley, but we know it's very close to, um, is it Tulare? It's Tulare County. County. And I, I actually used to know what sort of set of valleys it was. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, because we've sort of picked a place that, that sort of fit the kind of physical situation that we wanted to have where there was you know, mountains in the distance, but, and, and, and it could be kind of in, enclosed, because let's face it, I mean, you know, if you've got a herd of unicorn, and you've got griffins, and manicores, and dragons, and all that stuff, you can't have, you know, that's not going to happen in the city, right? You know, you got to have, Oakland, some, maybe, you, yeah, maybe, you've got to have paranoid, <laughs> you got to have some room, yeah, you got to have some room, you got to be in a valley, you got to have mountains, you got to be able mm-hmm. to be separated from other people, so, so, but we just, a lot of that stuff, as, as often with fiction, is also something that it, it accrues as you go because as you start to want things to happen a certain way, then you start saying, well, now I have to actually make this real. So where would it be and wh- how would it work? And, and one of the interesting things actually about writing fantasy and science fiction is that one spends a huge amount of time really trying to figure out how to do impossible things. You know, um, and they are impossible. And of course, that's one of the interesting things about it is you more it becomes even more clear to you why it's impossible as you try to find a way to make it at least believable. You know, <laughs> so um, ordinary farm has been exactly like that. I mean, we spend so much time talking about how these various creatures because we wanted them to feel realistic. We didn't want them to feel what? like. What's Disney the, cartoon animals. What's that game where the cups are switched around? Oh, you mean like three-card Monty? Three-card Monty. That, that's, that's what it is. I mean, that, that's how I think of it as it's like, <gasps> woo Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what that analogy Trick-tick. just meant. I have no idea. I mean, I, you mean, oh, you mean in terms of the, the convincing impossible. people that yes, it looks, yes, that yes, it's yes, real, yes. Yes. when actually you're just taking their money. Yeah, I'm with you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got a definition of our entire industry right there. 
Um, but no, I mean, that, so that's like a, that's a very important part of any kind of fantasy and science fiction writing. And to be honest with you, I have to say for me, that's always the most fun part is sitting around saying, how would this really work? How would, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually, it's really interesting now because there's like literally thousands of people all over the world these days whose self-professed um, job is to go on the internet and, and do little bits and pieces of what we writers do all the time. Like, you know, you see articles, you know, six reasons why not to fear the zombie apocalypse, you know, and they'll tell you, well, because see, they're going to fall apart real fast because they're dead, see, and they're not pumping any blood and blah, blah, blah. And that's that one or two things which they then turn into an article is what our everyday work consists of is trying to figure out how these things could actually work again just enough to make it believable you know i mean we're not trying to actually invent them if the zombie apocalypse starts it will not be at our house okay so we're not trying to create them we're just trying to make a believable version right you know um you're a guy who likes to create new worlds i mean you've created a lot of them so what made you decide to bring the fantasy into this world? You kind of turned your general uh, oeuvre inside out with this. With which? Uh, Dragons of Ordinary Farm. Okay. That's fantasy it, in the real world as opposed to right, well, I was reality in the fantasy. Because I haven't even mentioned the, the books I'm working on now, which also oh. do the same thing. So. Uh, this is the Bobby Dollar books. Yes, the Bobby Dollar books, yeah. Well, well I'll kind of go with all of that stuff then. Um, we're, we're, one of the reasons that we're, we're reading from Caliban and from the, the second Ordinary Farm book tonight is because we actually have, in, we've got some of the rights to those. And so as a result, they're, they're of interest to mm -hmm. us. We're, they're part of our, our venture mm -hmm. now. Um, but I'm also doing... Um, a new set of books, which we're calling either the Bobby Dollar books or the Angel Delorial books, or they're, they're kind of angel noir is what they are. And um, they're a similar thing, too, because the whole idea behind those books is that the main character is a sort of minor functionary in the great Cold War between heaven and hell. And he is an earthbound angel, and he's one of the people responsible for um, trying to uh, – essentially, he kind of works as a heavenly lawyer. He's an advocate for people when they die that they go to heaven, or if he doesn't succeed, then they go to the other place. Um, Can we get recycled if we're Buddhist? Uh, well, what's ah. uh, see now this kind of stuff I can't go into because that's one of the things that goes on in the story is even the angels themselves are having discussions about how does this all work because like regular life the afterlife is full of questions and uh, if you're at the bottom of the totem pole you don't always know what's going on at the top so um, and that was one of the ways again now. I haven't revealed what my ideas are about what's actually going on in all these things because this is going to be – these are going to be a little different for me because they're going to be about half the length of my regular books. But I want – they're going to come out like every year. So we're going to have kind of – but will they have that kind of noir feel to them? Oh, that, very that, definitely, that, yeah. uh, no, Chandler. Or... I, I I think so. I mean, I'm noir not trying... fantasy. I call them noir fantasy. Yeah, they're definitely fantasy. I think they're also funny. I mean, I've definitely yeah. tried to bring that to them too. But and sexy. And and sexy. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but um, so one of the things is though is that. You know, I got into this one saying, you know, with the, the, just I really like the idea. Okay, you've got heaven, you've got hell, you've got these guys in the middle who are the earthbound angels and demons who are kind of dealing with the day-to-day -day stuff of real living people and their lives and all that. Um, but then, of course, you know, I mean, you want to talk about opening Pandora's box, trying to imagine now not just how, like, the universe works, like any self-respecting science fiction writer, but trying to figure out how literally, you know, 
if this is indeed, and it's not entirely clear in the book, if this is indeed what it appears to be, which is the afterlife, the infinite, the eternity, all of the big concepts that we all wrestle with, um, you know, th I'm basically trying to figure out how that works, you know, and, and make it interesting, um, which it should be anyway, but also funny, which is not so easy, you know, when you think about dealing with, yeah, and if you get this thing wrong, then you burn in human, molten human feces for eternity. That's not usually the kind of stuff that makes people go, ha, I'll get that for a good Well, term. you need to find some new friends. <laughs> we love. Oh, no, I know, well, no, I, know my, I know my readers who are, because I'm one of those readers. I know my readers, you know, and the people who like my work and this kind of stuff will like these things. But I'm, it's, it's the kind of thing that, you know, I'm not sure about everybody else. But, you know. Um, but anyway, so it, it's, it's really one of the most exciting things and interesting things about the whole thing. And when I'm being lazy, I'm being lazy thinking about this stuff. So I guess I am working. But I spend hours just sitting around thinking about this stuff and, and how, how you <coughs> make these things work. How does a dragon fly? Why do unicorns um, have horns? We figured that one out for the, for the mm -hmm. uh, Ordinary Farm mm -hmm. book. Did we mm -hmm. mention that in the first one or in the second one? In the first one, thank yeah. you. We figured yeah. out why unicorns have horns and where they come from and why they have a horn in the middle of their forehead. And it's, it's, uh, it's very biological. It's very evolutionary. It's very it's obvious. It's based on the narwhal. Right. And you know what narwhal horns are? Which, of course, in medieval Europe were mistaken. Were, were, it's where they the were whole idea of the unicorn comes from. Yeah, because they used to r Na arrive horns. in, in uh, European markets and people... It's, it's a tooth, yes. It's a tooth, and it's also a tooth that is a very, um, uh, very sensitive sensing it's organ. Full of nerves. Exactly, like a whisker. Yeah. So we figured then. I mean, it smells the water. Well, it that smells would make the sense. The, the, the narwhal the tooth has grown to come straight out the front of its snout. Mm. Why wouldn't a unicorn? Because it doesn't make any sense to have a horn coming out of the middle of your forehead that doesn't do much of anything. But if you have it, just go slightly lower down, and it's a, a very specialized tooth, and it is a sensing device, and all. So. So anyway, I don't mean that's not going to change your life or anything, but I just thought that, you know, that's the kind of stuff that... We had that fun. Well, I mean, <laughs> I can tell you that there's a, a, a gigantic unicorn culture out there that we, you just changed all their lives. Well, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking for a little of that merchandising money, babe. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see my name on bumper stickers and little stained glass pendants hanging in people's windows. Um, 3D printed uh, unicorns. Absolutely. Yeah. No, but anyway, so I mean, so that's the kind of thing that's really fun about world building is you're literally trying to say, here's something that either nobody's ever seen before or it's something everybody knows about but nobody has ever tried to really explain how it would work. And I can't think of anything more fun to do for a living than sit around thinking about stuff like that and then convincing other nice people to give me money for it. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> way cool. <laughs> Does he cover the house with uh, spreadsheets and uh, diagrams ah, and no, uh, all no, sorts of... No, here we come to the part that he didn't want me to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> it's embarrassing, but not in the ways you think. It's not going to be entertaining. It's not going to be like, oh, yeah, and then he, you know, he likes to work naked hanging from the rafters. Or um, uh, just recently, um, oh, there sometimes. is a... Um, a, a uh, British uh, blog stro stroke fanzine called um, Starship Sofa. And um, uh, this is me stumbling over details again. Um, Tony, the guy, I mean, the, he won the Hugo last year for um, uh, b best fanzine. Um, 
he's doing a piece on um, writers and how and where they work. And uh, he just basically wanted a, 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 a photograph of, of uh, uh, you know, of Tad at work. And I thought about this because it's actually kind of difficult to get Tad. Uh, I, I do have photographs of Tad in the in his office, but it's not actually where he does his work because um, Tad uh, thinks everything through. The, I mean, those huge books with all of the plot lines. He he does it all, all of it. Bit by bit by bit. And he says it's because he's lazy. And it, it, in part as a reaction to the fact that he just doesn't want to sit down and do some work. He, um, he, he, he devises all of these things in his head and he plots the multiple strands and he, he essentially hangs around the house just sort of like looking glassy and strange. <laughs> And then to which the question would be, how can you tell that's different from any other time and then with he, me? And then he goes into the office, and um, and then he sits down, and he goes, and it's ten pages in about an hour and a half, and then he runs like hell, and that's the end of his working day. So um, I, I sent Tony this picture of Tad looking very sort of... In the garden, and I said, like a twelve-year-old girl looking at Justin Bieber. That's what you thought I looked like. Yeah, and so I said, you know, this is, you know, we were sitting in the garden, and and Tad was in in Tadland, and I just got up and took a photograph of him, and this is the nearest representation that I've got to him working. And Tony wrote back and said, and I, because I, I, you know, it wasn't quite the brief. And he wrote back and he said, that's fantastic, thank you. And I was like, oh, thank you. I mean, I... I just, just thank you. That was not the as embarrassing version of the story, so... The embarrassing version of the story involves... <laughs> you should have known, man. Tad shares a birthday with Einstein. <laughs> and Einstein used to do the same thing. He did very little work on paper. He used to just sort of sit around for hours and hours and hours and get into a semi-hypnotic state and, and, and do it all in his head. Now, it sounds absolutely extraordinary, but it's just another mode of thinking. And it is like jogging. It is a matter of which neural muscles you develop. You're a jogger or you're a swimmer or you're whatever you are. Uh, and it happens to have come out of Tad's, truly out of Tad's desire to avoid work. He just kind of went more and more and more into his own head. But whenever I say, you know, essentially Tad's novels and his fiction and his plotting are all a series of thought experiments like Einstein, he usually runs screaming from the room because he gets very embarrassed. And I shouldn't say it actually, because I mean, really, uh, you know, I mean. One of the great things about inside my own head is nobody tells stories I don't want them to tell. <laughs> <laughs> or if I invented them, I can just kill them off when they piss me off. <laughs> Not me. No, it's baby. just the Einstein comparison. My 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 wonderful wife, the most fabulous person in the entire world. Um, <laughs> I said person. You guys are children. <laughs> yeah, I bet you will. Not, not until I drive you home. Uh, anyway, no, my, my wonderful wife just w went into a... That was actually much more concise. My, my wonderful wife, under the influence of a margarita, 
<laughs> I, maybe more. When, when, uh, at, at the George Martin, yeah, I think you were tired. But at the George Martin uh, thing we did the other night when George came and did a reading, and not a reading, but he did a, a little thing and then signed books for like 19 hours or something. Um, and, and we were out in the lobby and um, I was signing a book for the two or three people who turned up for me. Um, and uh, <laughs> Rena was there. I, I'm kidding. I, it doesn't matter. I, I love George and I love his work, so I'm just joking. But then um, Deb was telling about me and comparing me and Einstein in, in, in a number of very strange ways, as I said, and slightly under the influence of, of a margarita. And, um, and, and I love you, darling, but it went on for like 25 minutes. And, and I was watching people literally falling over like at a Russian Orthodox wedding, you know, and <laughs> it's like uh, at a certain point, you know, all that Greek and all that heat, and you have to stand up for the whole thing, and people just faint standing up in those things. And that's what it was like there so bollocks no it's all true <laughs> it's all true it did not go like that right? that's well, the best version of that word i've ever heard uh, thank you very much <laughs> well i agree to disagree but i'm right <laughs> you know i i have one last question i want to ask and then we're going to open it up to the audience here uh, you know uh one of the things that's pervasive in the fantasy genre and certainly in your novels is magic and and one of the things that i really like about um the way you use magic is, is you use it differently. You know, you use it, you seem very aware that it's not just something that exists outside you. You're like a, you're like a, like a guy who has like a, a set of uh, a magic uh, crayons or something. And he, you know, this is this kind of, this is this kind. Right. And, I definitely, we were just actually talking about this the other day because I was saying to, to, to Deb about one of the things that's interesting about, about George uh, George R. R. Martin's uh, books that he's writing right now is that he's even more sparing with magic than I am. But we both of us have the same kind of philosophy, which is that for us personally, what we find most interesting is magic in, in, in being used as, um, you know, uh, like an emphasis or a, uh, uh, you know, to open a crack and show you something beyond or to, you know, kind of to, to uh, make the world uh, that you're presenting to the audience more rich and giving it something that's going on, you know, sort of underneath it in the same way that there's magma underneath the earth, but we don't see it all the time until it turns into a volcano or something like that. Um, whereas a lot of books that I am kind of allergic to, and I suspect it's true for George, I've never had a chance to ask him about it, um, are the ones where, you know, magic is, it's kind of a wish fulfillment thing, and magic is like, you know, a hot and cold running tap, you know, when somebody wants it, they turn it on, and, you know, and, and, and even though they may, uh, they, commonly these kinds of books have people go through a, an apprenticeship of some sort to learn magic, but the fact is, is it seems to be something that almost anybody could learn, or that like 10% of the people on the, you know, in the, in the world seem to be capable of learning, but nobody ever applies that to like, well, how would that actually change the world? How can your world still look medieval when literally, you know, 10 or 15% of the people there have these extraordinary abilities far beyond what our science has today? You know, so I, I do have kind of an issue with that stuff, but even more critically, and this is, this is, you know, we were talking beforehand when we were doing the kind of podcast thing, um, about music and musical metaphors and stuff. It's, it's almost like anything else. It's like when guitar solos, there was a, a period of about five years where guitar solos meant something in rock and roll music because it was the transition out of the old days, which were just sort of these kind of de, these kind of de rigueur uh, rockabilly solos to, you know, then in the kind of late 60s, early 70s where 
uh, mostly in the 60s, where people were really discovering the electric guitar as an instrument, like a saxophone as an instrument, an instrument of emotionality, right? So there was this flowering, and it's no, no surprise that all these really great guitarists were around at the same time. But then within a few years after that, by the mid-late 70s, um, they were just, you know, it's just everybody had to have guitar solo. And the guitar solos were kind of, you know, like any genre thing. They became they, a cliche. Yeah, and they had to outwork each other. And they became less about what was artistic and more about, like, well, I'll play mine faster. Or I'll throw in some, you know, Indian raga rock notes in it. Or, you know, I'll do some jazz stylings. And, and after a while, like, that's one of the things that punk rebelled against was because, like, that kind of stuff was just becoming... You know, uh, sucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yep. and boilerplate. It was boilerplate. Uh. Well, the same thing goes for magic in, in a fantasy novel. I mean, we wouldn't be reading fantasy novels if it didn't appeal to us. That idea of, you know, a world bigger and less known than ours, a world where things still happen, where, you know, we are still huddled around the fire and, you know. Um, but as soon as everybody can do magic, or magic is the entire subject matter of your book, it's like, you know, it's like the 40 minute guitar solo. You know, and uh, drum solos are worse, but, you know, so I'm a big, strong believer that, you know, you use this stuff lightly. You use it as an accent. You use it as a, to blow the thing wide open. You use it as something to suddenly pierce somebody's heart and make them see everything differently. And I'm talking about the readers, too, not just the characters. But as soon as you, 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 you lose it as, um, uh, as a thing that is significant and exciting every time it happens as soon as it becomes expected or ordinary then you know I mean, ordinary magic doesn't work you know expected magic cliched magic you know it's, it's not magic anymore let's get some magic from the audience any questions you sir uh, so going back to what you guys originally started with with literary uh, science fiction and fantasy and stuff um, like, for instance, China Mayville, or however he... China Mayville. Mayville. Yeah. His books could just as easily be in the fiction section as opposed to the fantasy sci-fi stuff. But I've noticed in the past at least decade that fantasy has gotten very dark. Like, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, books were lively and happy. The hero won at the end, got the kingdom, the castle, and the queen, or whatever. And now it's like the hero is raped multiple times, <laughs> and if he doesn't die in the process, he wakes up and decides that the kingdom was stolen away from him anyways, and he dies a pauper every single time. And, like, you know, Brett Weeks, Patrick Rothfuss, Brandon Sanderson, this whole new wave of, of fantasy, which is just, like, post-9-11, post-modern, nothing is happy anymore fantasy. Right, right. And your books aren't necessarily that dark, or even really dark at all. What do you kind of think of how these people who grew up reading your books and Jordan and Dragonlance and stuff like that have come and decided to rebel against it? Oh, I mean, you know, if, if people are honestly taking some of their experience as human beings and bringing it into their work, then I'm in favor of it. And, um, you know, if, if there is a – I'm not sure – first of all, I don't know I, – I, I don't feel like I'm as well-read in the field as I should be. Um, and I don't, so I can't comment on whether that's actually true. It's also maybe possible that, that there's also an effect of just that you're reading a lot of different kinds of stuff too. But – I'm very willing to believe that there is a kind of darker strain, and, and part of that may be historical and generational. Part of that could also merely be that um, there is always, you know, it's the same reason that, um, that 
that uh, Olympic records never go the other direction. You know, there's always, uh, you know, you, you can only make a record, you know, become more so. You can't, you know, go the other way. Once somebody's long jumped 29 feet, nobody's going to care about anybody jumping 26 feet. It won't be a record again until somebody beats the 29 feet. In the same way, when it comes to um, a, a very, you know, complex, tangled up, busy field like ours has become with literally thousands of books being published, there's also a pressure to become more exotic, to find new, new tones to bring to it and new ideas. And let's face it, you know, most people will not approach that by going, oh, I'll become even more basic. I'll become even more old-fashioned. No, mostly people are looking to push, you know, to push the boundaries outward because that's the obvious way to get people's attention. You know, if your idea of like, um, oh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll do something really dramatically different. I'll do like an everybody lives happily ever after, you know, and the princess marries the handsome prince and all that. It, it might actually be unusual at that stage of the genre, but people are not going to make a big deal. But if you have like, oh yeah, and the prince will get raped multiple times by the princess, you know, <laughs> dude, that'd be, and his horse, you know. <laughs> you know, obviously that's what people tend to notice, and so that tends to be the way these things flow out. Now, I'm not talking about those particular writers and saying they're doing that, but I'm saying that the movements of anything, the evolution of anything tends to be into areas that haven't yet been um, already, you know, explored and exploited. Well, also, too, uh, as we're often reminded, uh, um, fantasy and science fiction are not necessarily about the worlds they're set in. They're about this world, and no one can deny this world's going to hell in a handbasket, so why not send all the fantasy worlds there <laughs> right after? <laughs> no, that's actually very true. I actually taught a course at Stanford years ago, which was literally about the fact that all science fiction stories are about the era in which they were written. So we read science fiction books from that I thought were like representative of, of all these different eras, you know, of the, the 50s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, you know, and, and you could really see as we went through that how, you know, the entire society that the book was written in affected the, the worlds that were created in the book. So, yeah, that's very I, true. I have another thought, which is that um, I, by and large, the horror novel has not... Um, uh, has not been what it was during the 70s and 80s and during the heyday of uh, Stephen King. And I I, I think perhaps it, 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 it... This is just completely off the top of my head, but um, it's as if that that weighted locus that of, of uh, that, that need for uh, horrific reality has just sort of shifted and gone into another area of things. It's an evolutionary thing. It's all moved into the romantic side of horror is well, where it's gone. Horror, horror genre, yeah. Half of the horror genre is paranormal romance, and the yeah. other half is uh, mystery novels a la Silence of the Lambs. Right? And, yeah. and, you know, yeah. there's not... Yeah. That's far worse than, mm -hmm. uh, you know, even some of uh, Mr. Barker's uh, best imaginings, and those were pretty mm. damn good. Mm. Oh, yeah. I just figured it out what you were saying earlier when you were talking about how you thought like all this emphasis on vampires came out of the the, the as a reaction it's of the Bush years. Is a backwash. Backwash of the Bush years. Okay, and I was sitting there thinking, yeah, bloodsuckers, bloodsuckers. Okay, I got that. I got that. And I suddenly got that. Wait, everybody's really, really white. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a while. I, I, okay. Uh, do we have any further questions from the audience? Shivam. 
Well, I mean, I've got a million. Words. You already started. You might as well keep it up. Well, the thing is, um, and then moving on to the next thing you guys are talking about, about the publishing industry. I come from the video games industry, and I've also worked as a writer in video games and in journalism. And everything you were saying was literally the stagnation of role-playing games, of storytelling in the games industry over the past 30 years. Everybody of my age, I'm 30 now, we grew up playing games. And we all look back at things and say, you know, games really ought to be exactly like they were in 1992, only prettier and longer. <laughs> and when you ask a game designer, they're like, are you kidding me? Right, like, right. We did that 25 years ago, and you don't want to buy the thing I've got now. Right. And that sounds almost exactly like what you were saying with the way publishing is like, no, really, can't you just write Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn too? Yeah, and yeah. But well, go ahead. The question, though, is like you went to ebook publishing. You guys are talking about how we're moving now to where people can start doing things. A lot of what has been self-published is kind of direct. Like yeah. You look at oh, yeah. Lulu, you look at like all these things on like these e-published books mm -hmm. that people are coming out that are skipping the process, mm -hmm. the editing, skipping the publishing, mm -hmm. and suddenly you're reading. It's like, well, it's great, dude. I gave you two dollars, but this is not worth my. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yes. Well, I mean, obviously, the gr the great issue. There is, there is oh, sorry. Go ahead. There's going to be a separation of. Uh, I, I mean, it's it's. Again, it's just so much in you know matter of evolution, but it's going to become, if it isn't already, uh, you will have a handful of really fine raw talents arise, and then um, the majority of stuff that sells is going to sell um, uh, because it's good or because it's uh, because it's edited, um, because it's real writers backlists. And, you know, the, the rest is going to sell, you know, 12 copies to friends and neighbors. And, um... Well, the, the, big thing, the big thing with e-publishing is going to be how do people find things? That what yeah. is going to replace the bookstore? I mean, there already the Internet has done very well at, at, at uh, taking and even multiplying, like, fanzine culture. Okay, that is now the, the the internet is mostly fanzine culture. I mean, it's literally taken the entire science fiction field's history and and turned it into a worldwide communications tool. You know, I mean, that's it is like reading old fanzines. You know, to read the internet. The question will become now: How, where are people going to find things? How will they find things? And that's what's developing. And I'm not going to try and prognosticate because it's too big. It's too much a part of what you know, what the social life of the coming electronic world is going to be and how it's going to operate. And that's, you know, that's a subject for like a, a, a couple of weeks seminars rather than one night. I'd, but I'd hazard, I'd hazard a guess that there is more chance at play now. But, um, ran and more chance and randomness. We have, a, we have another get. Yeah. It's coming. It's coming. I just, just, just this morning, I, you know, I got a, a posting on Facebook where somebody said, um, you know, I just finished the Shadow March series. Um, once I'm done with my wrist therapy, uh, you know, can you tell me what's coming now? I mean, it's like, so people are still making jokes about me and my stupid, huge, heavy books. So, um, yeah, I mean, that will be nice. I, I've spent so many book signings watching, you know, some, some nice, you know, little diminutive fan, you know, maybe five feet tall and 110 pounds or something, holding a giant shopping bag full of my hardcovers, you know, this, like, look of, like, oh, no, I'm fine. Eh. You know, <laughs> I, 
<laughs> so yeah, that will be a nice change that they can have it all in one place. Mm. Glad to hear it. Have you seen what um, what Malcolm Edwards has just done with the uh, the vast pile of uh, Galan's backlist? Yeah. yeah, that's wonderful. I haven't seen it, Deb. What happened? What did Malcolm? Um, uh, he's uh, he's releasing on mass in. Uh, fairly cheap editions, I think. Um, and they're having a website to support it, all of the Galan's backlist. Hmm, that's interesting. So it's in e as e-books, right, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah as e-books, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Plus a lot of other stuff. Yeah. Other, yeah. other stuff from the same publishing company or? Other stuff from, from um, the same class of, of authors. Oh, okay, mm. okay. Oh, interesting. Okay, I'll have to check that I out. I hope the authors earn some money out of that. Yeah, that's obviously fairly important. Well, in theory, it, it, electronically, it should be pretty easy to track, I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> no, but you don't know what the deals are. You don't yeah. know what the deal, mm -hmm. like we said, you know, we had a supposedly, you know, somebody was doing us a favor to say they'd be happy to publish our backlist of e-books for, you know, give us 25% of it, and, you know, and we were well, saying... Uh, we could actually do a little better if we publish them ourselves. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, you know, because we're all going through the same outlets. You know, we're mm -hmm. all going to be using the same people. We're all using Amazon and Apple and Google and things and, like and that. A, so. Another one of the problems that's actually at work here is that, you know, of course, the, the X factor is the marketing and the visibility. Um, there's a financial journalist who I um, talk to sometimes on Twitter called James Altucher, who is an extremely interesting man, um, slightly nutty sometimes in a libertarian fashion. His blog is brilliant. And, um, and I, 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 we just sort of ended up conversing about this and that and this and that after I'd retweeted some of his uh, stuff. And he, uh, he told me uh, uh, about how he had had a number of um, financial books um, his first book sold very, very well, and his second book didn't sell very well, and his third book died. And uh, the and he'd moved from publisher to publisher to publisher. And um, he, uh, one day, out of idle curiosity, uh, he was essentially thinking, how do these people make a... How does any writer make a living from a book when there's no marketing and publicity and there's no visibility to anything like what I'm used to in the financial industry and with financial products and financial websites. And so he picked up the phone to his American publisher of the third book and he said to them, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just a journalist doing some research. Uh, can you tell me, you know, James Ald Altucher's book, uh, what did you do publicity-wise for it? And they said, oh, well, well, hang on, we'll call you back. And then they did actually call him back a couple of hours later. And they said, well, um, we got him on to uh, Jim Cramer's show and we got him on to, um, you know, sort of MSNBC's Money World or something like that. And he said he put the phone down, he said, with a, a mixture of complete outrage and total amusement because he'd done those things and the publishers had, had actually done nothing. You know, he'd used his own contacts. And that is very true for very, very many people who are published by, uh, you know, by the, the old school of publishing um, there are very Especially many these risks. Days, though, because there they're, are they're very many risks for the for the for the writer and for their books w within a corporate um, setup 
But, you know, one of the most significant ones is you are not going to get any of the marketing and publicity money. And I used to regard um, fighting, get, getting, getting the, 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 the budget from um, the, and uh, the, getting a, a director of press on my side. I used to regard that as, you know, extremely important part of my job. And I used to go in swinging for my books. And um, that th that is not to lord my own publishing. That is to say, that was then. I don't think anything like no, that no, no, is no, no, possible that, the, now. The industry has totally changed. I mean, that's what we've found ourselves with our own yeah. writing. Is that that's getting right. anybody that's to do right. marketing and publicity? And that's what anymore. that's what Al Tucker was talking about. Yeah, it's really really difficult in the field these days. And that's another thing that makes electronic publishing. Um, very, very interesting to a lot of people is that you're no longer getting the benefits you used to get from the old-fashioned publishing companies. One of the primary benefits was that theoretically you were hooking up with people who are going to do all your advertising and marketing for you that you couldn't do. Um, and then they were also going to bind your books and store them and all these things. But, but they, they, but they don't because they just don't, they don't have the money. But they, but they don't do that much anymore. They, they don't have the money. Well, and there aren't many stores left either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right. Thirty thousand dollars for promotion of some book, and they didn't. They tried to save the thirty thousand. They sued them and won because they. Mm. Mm. Through you, you know. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, and that was in yeah. probably in the old days when they actually did do some marketing and publicity, whereas these days it's just mm. kind of a given. They're hardly doing anything. Oh, we've got a website, they say. Like, whoa. The, the young lady <laughs> there has a question, I believe. Oh. You, right there. Well, I. Right, right, right. You mean you as the writer? I mean, yeah. you, the writer in general. Well, I was actually saying to my wife that I, I, back some time ago, and she very sensibly said, don't even start with me. I'm not taking on something like that. But I had said that I think that those kinds of business models are going to be the next big thing. Um, because let's face it, in, in the, the vertical models are not as important when you're not dealing with a physical product anymore, you know, when you're not dealing with physical communication anymore. I mean, one of the reasons that everything in publishing, for instance, and I'm sure many other industries as well, but one of the reasons these things work the way they do is because they're based on models from over 100 years ago, where people literally had to be in the same town to do the same things. That's why all the publishers are in New York. That's why all the filmmakers used to be in, in Los Angeles, you know. There's a whole thing about being in the same place. Well, if all your agents and, and publishers and all of that stuff is all in New York and the companies are all in New York, well, obviously they're going to do their warehousing near New York, blah, blah, blah. All of this stuff carries on. As that stuff goes away, the vertical model no longer applies. So yes, to me, it makes absolute sense that this stuff will be essentially clouds of people putting together, you know, different modules. You know, I want to do this project and not just with, with 
publishing books, but I think it's essentially going to be uh, one of the business models of tomorrow that we're going to see are going to be very effective, which are going to be these kind of collectives put together to do particular kinds of tasks, either short-term or long-term. So, you know, and what the, the, the what, what will take the place of publishing companies will be people who are like publishing facilitators, who can say to you, okay, well, you might want to think about hooking up with these guys and these guys and these guys. Oh, and there's this group over here that could do such and such for you, but if you work with them, then you won't you won't need this, so only do this part, and here's some people who'll do that part, right? That, to me, makes sense as to where things are going. And to be honest with you, if I had the time and the energy, and, you know, and I could convince my poor wife to, to come along on yet another one of Tad's harebrained ideas, Mr. Toad's Wild Rides, um, that's what I would be doing, is putting together a, a publishing facilitator, because I really think that's going to be the way things are going. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd make her do that part. That's why she doesn't want to do it. I see I see a hand with a green sleeve on it. That's you. Last my love you. No, I'm sorry. I remember because uh, what earlier on you mentioned the comment about the fact that the publishers still aren't actually doing much to actually self-publish and advertise. And you mentioned a comment about the website. I remember earlier sometime you were saying about one of your recent releases. I say recent, meaning one of the latest ones, not recent under any time, uh, as far as time is concerned, but knowing you. <laughs> um, but you mentioned something about the fact that, like, when on the launch day for your book... Oh, yeah. Like, oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't want to. I I I don't want to go, go into specifics. I don't want to go into specifics. But one of our, one of our publishers for one of our, uh, uh, not my mainstream well-known books, but one of one of the other things, um, actually on the day of the launch. This is an example of this stuff. They 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 did nothing in terms of marketing or publicity. They said, but we've got this great website, you know, blah, 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 you know. And as I said, like, wow, these days, that's a huge deal, having a website, you know. Um, but, uh, I mean, for God's sakes, my mom has a website. Um, yeah. but, <laughs> but anyway, so, and, I, and, I, and literally on the day, on our publication date, not only was there, not, and, you know, we were supposed to be one of the lead titles. Not only on the, on the publication date was there no mention on the, like, front page of, like, oh, and this is being released today. I had to search the whole damn website for like 15 or 20 minutes to find any mention of, of the book that was, that, that was being published on that day. So that was their website that they were saying, hey, well, that's where we're marketing you. We're marketing the heck out of you on our website. It's like, well, that's not quite how I would use the word, you know, marketing the heck out of you. That doesn't quite fill the bill for me. So yeah, that was a priceless example of modern day publishing. Our agent says that um, he uh, is waiting for um, real new publishing models to spring up. Um, but I keep thinking that uh, he, he says there are, he said to me in passing that there is a company in Seattle that he thinks is very interesting. I haven't gotten the skinny on that yet. Um, but I think that there has to be. Um, a whole a, a generation of new publishing coming along um and i'm just i'm just waiting to uh, I'm, I'm just waiting for it to, to to get real we won't recognize it in 10 15 years it'll be so different and to be honest about it's going to be like the record companies and stuff it's like they they may hang on but only if they completely change their business models and a lot of the publishers are going to disappear because mm -hmm. they're just not going to be able to offer enough i i i 
can, I, well, I they won't be great... able to sell their horses and buggies. <laughs> That's right. Damn. I had a, a great thing this week that I do regard as a, um, a very interesting piece of new publishing. Um, Faber and Faber, who have, of course, the world's preeminent um, poetry list, uh, old, 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 lit, nutty, fusty, dusty literary house in London. Oh, T.S. Eliot's. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Well, they yeah, arrive yeah. a lot of rock and stuff. Well, they have, um, they released um, uh, a couple of months ago, The Wasteland, as um, and uh, you either call it an enhanced ebook or you call it an app. But it's, I mean, I, I remember, you know, my, my beloved copies of, of, of The Wasteland, you know, I've got annotations all over them after I'd looked up all the cultural references and I put them all in one place. Well, that's what Faber have essentially done with The Wasteland. They hyperlinked it? They've hyperlinked it. It's ah. in an app. Um, they published it as an app, and they thought T.S. Eliot's the Wasteland. And um, uh, they, six weeks ago, they published it, and they budgeted it. It's the first thing that they've done like this. They budgeted it very cautiously um, and tried to uh, make it profitable within a year, but it was profitable last week. Boom. And I just went, whoa, you know, that, that you could put out a work like The Wasteland. But it's The Wasteland. Yes, uh, yes, it is, and it's like, oh, it, you know, it's 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 one of the the sort of feet of Western culture, but it, it's it, it's got a solid backlist sale. It's not bestseller numbers. Right. It's college backlist numbers, but the fact that they have they've made this you know this app that just went profitable almost immediately. I just, I'm still. I'm, I'm I just think that that's wonderful. I'm still wondering how many feet does Western culture have? Because you said it's one of the feet of Western culture, and I'm so I'm trying to. I'm trying to For some reason, I flashed on the Buddhas that the Taliban oh, blew okay. up. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right okay. then. Right. Or, or so Ozyman, we're talking about actual. Or Ozymandias feet. look at my works and yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. it's a stone that had in no a desert. F- uh, yeah. And it's completely. I don't think it had any feet actually. It's completely hyperlinked in my brain. No, I couldn't. Well, I, I couldn't sense. figure out if it was like if it was a measurement of height. You know the feet, all the feet of Western culture, or if it was something like with a the, bunch the, of the feet. The little toes on the bottom of the table. Yeah. Yeah. The like squiddly diddly. I for that? I can go on my phone right now to Google Books and download the like you know public domain version of the Wasteland and read it for free. Right, but why presumably. Why would you? That because it's pretty. And well, but and pres- because presumably it's beautifully it's been, annotated. No, I was going to say presumably it's been enhanced. In some way that, in other words, it's a new annotation that it's, you know, and it's it's the same way as if somebody does the work of editors and and, uh, scholars along with just along with uh, T.S. Eliot. It's like if you do a new translation, like, for instance, when Seamus Heaney did uh, uh, Beowulf Beowulf, um, and who did Gilgamesh? Was that all? Anyway, there was there's been a number of those kinds of, you know retranslations. And so it's, it's equivalent to that. But they're taking advantage of the electronic nature. So. It's the quality of the work involved. She's just excited about it because she used to wake me up at early hours in the morning to burble to me about T.S. Eliot. That was the four quartets, darling. Well, it's still T.S. Eliot. It's still too effing early. <laughs> <laughs> it might always be too early for yeah, T.S. Well, Eliot. No, I love T.S. Eliot, but not, not like 7 o'clock. I'm somebody who goes to bed at 3 in the morning mm-hmm. and likes to sleep till like 9.30 or so. And there was my, my lovely young wife. At six o'clock in the morning or something, bouncing up and down on the edge of the bed because she just had had some incredible epiphany about the f- 
the four quartets, and I was just really not that interested at that point. Okay, I'm going to say one more term, and then maybe we should wrap this up. That's right. Book trailers. <laughs> you mean you mean like the kind that yeah. people have to use to bring my books to the book signings? <laughs> <laughs> Giant heavy tomes. Yeah. You have to have a U-Haul and yeah. um, book trailers. I, I'm fully in favor of it, and I think that's one of the things I'd like to do. Um, uh, again, the thing about trailers that works is when they're they're snappy and and they get people's attention and they're surprising sometimes, or they show you something about the thing that you might have already thought, oh, I'm not interested in that, and then you see that and go, oh, that looks really cool. Well, it gets books on TV. I mean, geez. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm talking almost on the internet or anywhere. Yeah. I mean, just anything that will make people notice something that they wouldn't notice otherwise, obviously, is valuable. And we're living in an increasingly visual culture. Right. Mm. But still, for all the visualness, for all the glorious 3D special effects, hey, this presentation is in 3D. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and you don't need glasses. But um, what we really are, we are a narrative species. We're, we're story oriented. <laughs> we are. We I, are. Absolutely. I, I've got, I have theories about, well, we both have theories about why that is, but I think it's all tied up with the nature of consciousness mm-hmm. because the way in which consciousness flows inside ourselves is that we make sense of everything and we tell ourselves a story about our experience. The novel um, enacts that and it, it enacts that reassuringly. It's that, you know, this... Um, extraordinary flow of, of of chaos that we live in, and sensory overload, and 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 whichever way you you parse it, the novel tells you, yes, it it, it will one day um, make us make us make sense as a story just like this does. I've always wondered it if it distills it down so perfectly. Gets rid of all the crap. I've always wondered if religious people, because um, I'm not religious, but I've always I'm maybe kind of spiritual, but I'm not religious. I've always wondered if religious people have a different experience of reading fiction. Because one of the things that I've always liked about fiction is the fact that it's the one thing that I know where there actually is a higher power in charge. You know, I mean, there's somebody actually making decisions for the, you know, for the the benefit of that particular universe, you know. And I've always wondered, is that, because that, to me, that's one of the things I like about it. But do religious people go like, ah, you know, who cares? Well, that's why they call you dog. There you go. Yeah. Dog the highest. We should, we should, we should wrap. I'm sure yeah. we kept all these people up way too late. We've been enjoying the fabulous verbiage of Tad Williams, Deborah Beale. They're great authors. You can buy their books. You can read them, and that's the most important thing. Get out there, buy those books, pay for them, and then read them and experience them. And we have to thank our hostess. Rena. Rena. Yeah. And, SF and Jacob. SF. Thanks for having me. And if you don't buy our books, buy somebody's books. You know? It's yeah. like... And thank you all for coming. You guys are great. And yeah. it's really great yeah. to see all these people here paying attention and enjoying this stuff. Great audience. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.